Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. 
Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're traveling across Italy to find the best recipes and the best stories. Matt Goulding infiltrates the secret society that reigns over Neapolitan pizza. One of their bylaws is something like there may be no variance greater than 0.25 centimeters from crust to the center of the pizza. Plus, Leah Koenig guides us through Rome's Jewish cuisine, from artichokes as crisp as potato chips, to the Shabbat dinner that made her stop being a vegetarian. I looked at the table and it was covered in meat dishes. And I just, I literally, I turned to my husband and I was like, if the phrase when in Rome ever applies, it's tonight. I'm going to eat everything. And I ate everything and I'm really glad I did. To start our tour of Italy, we're heading to the islands with author and travel guide Katie Parla. Her book is Food of the Italian Islands. Katie, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Okay, the islands. Um, Sardinia, Sicily, we've heard of those. How many other islands are there that you talk about in your book? There are hundreds. When you think about Venice, there are like 120 islands. Some of them are inhabited, some aren't. But when you go to like the coast off of Lazio, you've got Ponza and Ventoten and Palmarola off the coast of Naples, Procida, Ischia, and super famous Capri. And then remember, Chris, that those big islands you mentioned, Sicily and Sardinia, also have their own islands. Some are just like hanging out off the coast of Tunisia. Others are part of archipelagos. So Italy is a kind of island nation. Okay, so the history, as I understand it, is you have Byzantine rule, right? After the Roman Empire moves to Constantinople, uh, Arabs come in around 9th century. And so, so take it from there. Well, don't forget the Goths and the Lombards. They would be furious to be excluded. <laughs> um, and then the Byzantines roll in. Of course, Arab rule is the most impactful, I think, from an ingredient standpoint um, until the Spanish rule, when lots of botanical species from the Americas are being introduced. And so when you eat in the islands, whether you're off the coast of Rome or Naples or in Palermo itself, the food is this product of this incredible cross-contamination of different ingredients. Some are coming from North Africa, some are coming from Asia, others are coming from the Americas. And what we kind of dream of when we go to an Italian island is sitting on a beach and eating eggplant parmesan, a dish that would be impossible without this gastronomic conquest. Uh, techniques, just a couple. You talk about salting water more heavily for fresh pasta than dried. And, I, you know, I never considered that before, but it obviously makes sense because you're cooking it for two or three minutes instead of eight to 10. And then you also talk about always salting fish and meat, meat overnight, fish for a few hours before you cook it. You want to just talk about that? Yeah, for sure. So Food of the Italian Islands is my seventh cookbook. And so over the course of the past 10 years, I've gotten a lot of feedback from users and readers. And one thing that keeps coming up again and again is like, you know, the meat doesn't have the same flavor. You know, the, the fish that I have access to doesn't have the same flavor. And I'm like, just try seasoning it continually, seasoning it before you cook with it. And that will at least be like a kind of little hack to enhance the flavor. But for sure, taste everything as you go and know that if you're making spaghetti with botarga and clams, you can really kind of rein in the salt there and then adjust when 
you're serving. Salt's like, salt's a big ingredient, not just in pasta water and flavoring meats or tenderizing meats, but different savory ingredients really inform cooking. And if it hasn't been clear yet, this whole book is just like pro Sardinia propaganda. I want everyone to think about Sardinia and cook Sardinian food. So I'll use two Sardinian ingredients as examples. All of the wonderful sheep's milk cheeses, which are sort of generically called pecorino, that's the singular pecorini's plural, and botarga, which brings a level of umami to a dish that I think you need to be a little bit conservative with salting before you add those ingredients. Not to mention salted anchovies that show up in a large percentage of the recipes. You know, I use a couple, not salted, but in, in oil just to dissolve in the oil and the onions. You, you use that in quite a few recipes, I notice, just to add some additional flavor. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, when you're looking back at recipes from Sardinia, Sicily, and the other islands, a lot of the anchovies that were being employed were salted. So now you can certainly find them under oil, but they certainly do appear throughout because so many places on the coast and in the interior were salting anchovies for long preservation so they could be used throughout the year rather than just during the fishing season. Uh, snacks, hors d'oeuvres, appetizers... You have a lot of really interesting things like tuna salad sandwiches or jammy eggs with the salted anchovies cooked six and a half minutes. Uh, I think here in the States, we don't do hors d'oeuvres very well here, but I think Italy does them much better. A, a few suggestions, perhaps? Yeah, so this is my advice. Like Venice is a cool place. It's also one of the most expensive places on the planet to visit. So one very affordable way you can get into the Venice spirit is by making cicchetti and just preparing some of the right. really simple things you mentioned. You could do like an egg that's got a salted anchovy spiked into it. You can do a little toast with any type of pesto that you want. This is something that's super controversial and all the Italians listening are going to get very angry and I, I apologize for that. But there are a lot of pestos in the book that would traditionally go on pasta, but you can make those and put them on little toasts and serve those. And that's delicious and have a little select spritz. So rather than the Aperol spritz, use the red bitter liqueur from Venice um, and you got yourself a Venetian party. It's really affordable. And it also takes it out of the kind of like hors d'oeuvre setting. It's more convivial. Um, so I just saved all your listeners 5,000 euros. A uh, couple of things really struck me, or more than a couple of things. One, one was using candied orange peel and dumplings in Sardinia. Okay, so one of the coolest places in the world is called Nuoro. It is the capital of the subregion of Barbaja. It's a wild and wonderful place. And there's a spot there called Il Rifugio, and they make culorjones, which are these potato and cheese dumplings that are pinched with this beautiful closure. And because the chef is a you know, 32-year-old guy, he's studied abroad, he's been in Japan and France, he wants to add like a slightly different dimension to traditional dishes. And so he serves his classic culorjones with an untraditional sauce, so like butter, sage, and candied orange zest. It doesn't radically change the dish. It makes it feel really modern with a very small tweak. Let's talk about mixing starches like pasta with potatoes or pasta with chickpeas. Obviously, it's a long tradition of that. Are there other combinations or partnerships that are particularly local for the islands? I mean, the Neapolitan archipelago is like the capital of starch and starch. So you can definitely find, you know, fried breadcrumbs, that are sprinkled on top of pastas. Potato, provolone, and pasta is a classic comfort food in the Neapolitan archipelago. But yeah, there's really no shame in putting carbs on carbs or even incorporating potato into bread dough. 
or into desserts. Um, you often find, not in the islands in particular, but in Puglia and Basilicata, there's a tradition of ricing potatoes into cookie dough hmm. to give it some more caloric heft. Tastes great, too. Let's go back to pesto. On the outskirts of what is a pesto or what is considered a pesto, could you just go through some other pretty different ways of thinking about pesto? Because it's, as you said, you could just put it on, on bread or toast, put it on pasta, but most of us have a very limited repertoire, at least here. Yeah, I mean, for sure, Genova has the best pesto PR in the game because globally, when you hear pesto, you think of specifically that city or the Ligurian region's recipe, but pesto just implies the method of producing a condimento or a way to dress pasta and use a mortar and pestle to smash the ingredients. And they vary, but they could include tomatoes. In fact, many in Sicily do. They often include nuts, pistachios, almonds, hazelnuts even, pine nuts, herbs, uh, mint or um, basil or oregano might figure in, uh, and then garlic. And then some have cheese and some don't. So I think when we hear pesto, we shouldn't be thinking of a sauce. We should be thinking about the technique. And I think that will, I think, be a little bit more enlightening to people in terms of what constitutes a pesto. So you've been doing this a long time, but let's assume I went to Sardinia for a week. What are the three mistakes I would make and what are the three things I should do right instead? Well, I mean, a mistake would be not renting a car. Uh, because there's so many special experiences and places that are only accessible by a vehicle. A mistake would not be putting full insurance on that vehicle, so you could have a consequence-free <laughs> experience. Um, a mistake would be booking every single meal at a restaurant, because as wonderful as many of the restaurants are in Sardinia, I always recommend you know doing some market eating, eating at a bakery. There are tons and tons of... like takeaway joints where you can go and get things to take to the beach or on a hike. And, you know, experiencing that side of Sardinia and those types of dishes, which kind of mirror some of the things people eat in homes, um, is something you can't experience at a restaurant with table service. Katie, it's been a pleasure. I need to get on a plane to Sardinia tomorrow. <laughs> Thanks so much. It was a delight. Thanks so much. That was Katie Parla. Her book is Food of the Italian Islands. Now it's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is the author of Home Cooking 101 and, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals, which she was recently filming in Naples. So, Chris, before we take a call, I just want to tell you, you know, I was in Italy, and I know you've been to Naples, and we tasted three different kinds of pizza, three different styles. You know, one was the classic margarita, and then there was another one that was more fancy with ricotta, and it was a star-shaped thing. Woo-woo. But the middle one was my favorite. It was fried. Have you had fried mm, pizza? No. Apparently, I think it was right after World War II, they couldn't use their ovens, or there was some reason why women, mm. or cooks, but it was mostly women, decided they had to get inventive and figure out another way to cook mm. their pizzas. You know, what we had that day was a mixture of guanciale and pancetta, and then I think as ricotta and something they called provola, and then they throw it into a deep fryer. And, wow. you know, five minutes later, hands down, one of the really? best things I've ever tasted. You didn't have that when you were in Naples? No, I went to Michaela's, Michael's. They only have three kinds of pizza, and they're all the three traditional ones, and they all cook in 
60 seconds. Yeah, and it's crazy. Everybody eats pizza with a fork and knife. And, you know, we're not doing smoked duck Spago stuff. Right. Which is fine, too. But this was all traditional. Yeah. And, you know, you stand in line outside for half an hour. And, and then you're happy. But I, I, that sounds... Next time you go to Naples, you got to have fried pizza. I'm telling you. It's heaven. Okay. All right. Let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Joe from Houston. Hey, Joe from Houston. How can we help you? I had a question on anchovies. I see a lot of recipes that call for one anchovy fillet finely diced. <laughs> and uh, that leaves you with a, a nearly full tin of anchovies. Yes, it does. It's got the oil and it's messy. So I use anchovy paste because yeah. it's easy to put the cat back on and put it in the fridge. But I was just wondering, is there a reason why these recipes would call for anchovy filet instead of paste? Is it not a perfect substitute? What I love about cooking is people think there's always a rational explanation for things that go on in recipes. I think people just get used to it saying that. Uh, obviously, a real anchovy in oil or whatever is probably going to have a fresher, more natural, less salty flavor than the paste, which is probably made not from the highest quality fish, I would assume. But if you're using a teaspoon or a tablespoon in a stew or something just to provide an umami, you know, foundation, I don't think it would make much difference one way or the other. But those tins of anchovies in oil will keep you know, they're going to keep a while in the fridge, a couple months, so uh, you can keep them around. But I know what's going to happen. I, I do the same thing. I use one, and then they get thrown out. <laughs> so yeah, anchovy it paste. behind the milk or something, you can't yeah. you know, forget about it. So yeah. Or my wife, who throws everything out after 24 hours, will get hold of it. But um, <laughs> if you do use anchovy paste, just make sure you get a really good quality one, you know. But, okay. you know, there's nothing wrong with anchovy paste, and there's no – I don't think there's any good reason. Yeah, you're fine. I would – paste is fine. Yeah, I basically agree. I think if the adding of the anchovies just there for some umami and salt in the background, you could certainly reach for the uh, anchovy paste. You know, if it's a pretty anchovy-forward recipe, you might want to use the little filet guys, and they do keep in the fridge for a while. My problem is if we get a tin versus a jar, then you open right, the tin, right. and then, you know, it sloshes around. Right, that's, that's you bad. Know, so you have to put it in a plate, and then Jars you have to better. put... And then, you know, suddenly your whole refrigerator smells like anchovies, which is not a good smell, let's put it that way. A recipe calling for one filet, I mean, that doesn't really That's do silly. much. I'd use two or three and you saute it yeah. or, with the onions and the oil. And they whatever. melt. You don't have they to melt. chop them. You don't. That yeah. is silly also. Yeah. They just, you put them in and cook they them. They dissolve. The, they'll dissolve. Yeah. They're a great ingredient. Yeah. They should be used Well, it's more. like fish sauce. It doesn't taste fishy. No. You just won't notice it as, yeah. as fishy. So, yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take okay. care. Bye. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Sarah and I want to solve your cooking mysteries. Just give us a ring. 855-426-9843. One more time. 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Allie from Charleston, South Carolina. How can we help you today? So my husband and I are big pizza fans. He was actually born on National Pizza Day. It was kind of meant to be. And we have been making a lot of homemade pizza and we're gifted a pizza stone and a pizza peel. But we have been having some difficulty with transitioning our pizza from the peel to the stone without any sticking at all. And so we're nervous every time. Our pizzas always taste fine, but sometimes they end up kind of ugly because we end up with a little tear, one spot that sticks, and then we have to kind of use all hands on deck to get it into the oven. 
So we were wondering if you had any suggestions to help us get it in one piece. <laughs> well, I'm going to pass this to Chris pretty quickly because he's the pizza maven. But have you tried using semolina? We have not. Yeah, because I that's think... That's the answer. That is the answer right there. Yeah, yeah. That's the answer to the question, use semolina. Because I was also going to say, because I'm a big fan of this, is, you know, when you're making something and it doesn't turn out perfect, and pizza is certainly one of those things, don't ever sweat it. Just call it rustic, right? <laughs> You know, it's how you position it. But it is really annoying if you've gone to all the trouble to make pizza and it's all shaped and it's topped and you're about to put it in the oven and it doesn't come off the peel. I mean, that is... Okay, okay, I get that. That's a three-cocktail night right there. Okay, well, then I'm just, I'm referring to (laughs) cooking in general. No, that's true, that's true. But Um, I used to use cornmeal, but mm -hmm. that's kind of nasty on the underside of the pizza. Semolina is very hard. And it's very high gluten, and it'll just roll right off the peel. You'll have no problem at all. So just buy a bag of it. It's great. I tend to use – I have a metal peel I use. It is also not perfectly flat Mm -hmm. so that I think it makes it easier to get the pizza off the peel. You might – I don't know if you have a wood peel or metal one. But, yeah, semolina. Just buy a bag of semolina. It's a few bucks, and that'll – solve your problem. Also, do you, secondary question, do you usually form your pizza crust right directly on the peel or do you form it somewhere else? Okay. Yeah, that's a long story, but you have to get the dough up to about 75 degrees, at which point Mm -hmm. it's not going to retract on you. It's easy to shape. So I shape it. And then once I get it to the right size, then I transfer it to the peel with a semolina on it. And then I'll top it on the peel, but I'll do all the shaping because I'm picking it up and I'm using my fists and everything else to shape it. But once it's the right size, then I'll dump it on the peel. That'll really solve your problem. Do you bake on a stone or a steel? Yes, we bake on a stone. Yeah, that seems to really work too. So, And last thing, so what is, do you do one of these multi-day cold ferments or do you make it the same day or what's the recipe like? I've been trying a few, but I recently got back into making sourdough. So the most recent attempts we've done are with sourdough crust. Mm. Mm, yummy. And we've, Love the flavor, so oh, we kind of want to stick great. with that. Yeah. Boy, that sounds Jeez, good. We want to come over. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much. Yeah. Pleasure. Bye-bye, Allie. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Coming up, we explore Roman Jewish cuisine, including a cherry pie that has a secret. That's up after the break. Hey, Chris Kimball here asking for a favor. There's something you can do to help us out. Just leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Milk Street Radio. Tell us and new listeners what you love about the show and why you listen every week. We'd really appreciate it. And thanks. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it you know I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like man this beer is good (laughs) there are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White 
And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. I recently came back from a trip to Rome where I explored some of the classics Cacio Pepe, Salt and Boca. But as with every trip to Italy, I also came across some lesser-known dishes. And one of the most interesting was a frittata made with spaghetti, olives, and capers. Scamaro 1799. This is how it's called at the vendor at the market. 
It was invented in 1799 by a chef who usually cooked for royalty. But in this case, it was asked from the Celestinian monks, which is our order, very specific order of monks, to prepare a dish without meat that could be eaten to give energy to the monks during the period of religious diet. That was my guide, Adriana Paschini. She also took me around the city to ask Italian chefs what they really think about garlic and how to cook with it. The general belief, even in Rome nowadays, is that the garlic somehow ruined the taste. One of those chefs was Elio Mariani at the restaurant Cacchino. While I was there, bartender Simone Migna gave me a tour of their famous wine cellar, which is dug into a hill made out of broken amphora from ancient Rome. It's a dry structure with nothing that glue a pieces to the other. This allows the air to pass by and allows us to have a constant microclimate inside the cellar, always 10 degrees on the floor for a maximum of 16 on top, with just one degree of difference between summer and winter. But there was another restaurant that really stood out to me, a place that wasn't even on my original itinerary. So when I got off the plane, I went down to the old Jewish quarter for a plate of perfectly fried artichokes at the kosher restaurant Yodvada. Because the day before I went to Rome, I spoke with Leah Koenig about her book Portico, which tells a fabulous story about the Roman Jewish kitchen. Leah, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much. It's um, an honor to be here with you. You know, I love this book for two reasons, at least two reasons. One is the recipes look delicious and are interesting, but also how some Roman cuisine was sort of translated uh, at the hands of Jewish cooks. So when did this begin? You talk about during Roman times, that was the beginning of a Jewish community in Rome? Yeah, so the Roman Jewish community dates back more than 2,000 years. There are actually some people who say that they can date their families back to ancient Roman times. So if you're familiar with at all with the Hanukkah story, you may have heard of the Maccabees. And Mm -hmm. the story basically goes that the first Roman Jews were emissaries of the Maccabees. They were fleeing persecution in ancient Judea. And so that group is called Italkim. And then there's two other groups of immigrant communities that came later on. The first would be this Fardim who came during the Spanish Inquisition. Spain actually ruled Sicily at the time. So all of the rules of the Inquisition also applied to the the Jews of Sicily and southern Italy. So at that point, they moved north seeking safety. And then in the 1960s, about 4,000 Jews from Libya moved to Rome. So, And it's partially because Libya was a colony of Italy, so there was a lot of connection. Um, so you have this wonderful ancient community that actually is, as all communities are, um, a bit of a mosaic. So, okay, 16th century, Pope Paul IV establishes the Roman quote-unquote ghetto. And you say, this part really struck me, The area was 250 steps wide by 200 steps long and housed 9,000 people at its peak capacity. This was a very small part of Rome. Yes. um, Rome was actually not where the first ghetto was. It was actually in Venice 40 years earlier. And the word ghetto actually is an Italian word. It means foundry, like Hmm. copper foundry, because there was a literal copper foundry in Venice right where 
the Jews were forced to live. Hmm. And in Rome, the buildings had to be built vertically because the community kept growing. And so you couldn't get much sunlight during the day. And then on one side of the Roman ghetto, there is actually a now beautiful ruin called Portico de Ottavia, which literally means Octavius Porch, which is the book is named Portico after that structure. Um, And it was a fish market. So you have to imagine in the summer and the heat with the fish and the flooding and the number of people, it was just not a lovely place um, to be. Not to get too dark, but just to finish this history during World War II, there was some hope on the part of the Jews in Rome that the Catholic Church would protect them from the Nazis at the time. But there were a number of Roman Jews who actually ended up being taken to Auschwitz, right? Yes. Um, So basically, you know, Italy was on the side of Germany originally. But when Italy decided to join the Allies, um, that's when things got really bad. So um, they they did come into the ghetto one morning, very early, like six in the morning. I met a man when I was there who actually remembers his mom being taken away. Um, Mm. He's 91 now. Um, His name's Emmanuel, and he still lives in the ghetto, like where he grew up. And yeah, so at that point, I believe 1,000 Jews were taken away, which, I mean, in Rome, there's only about 16,000 Jews now, so it's it was a lot of people. Um, the Catholic Church officially did not condemn what the Nazis were doing, but from what I have read, there were a lot of kind of internal directives from the Pope to convents and monasteries to... Yes, I've heard about that too. Yeah, to help hide Jews. So there's a lot of... I I met a lot of people when I was there who hid in convents when they were children, um, and that was how they survived the war. There was a lot of restrictions during the ghetto period on on occupations, and one exception was to be a street vendor, Mm -hmm. and many of them became frigatori or friars. So frying was one of the things that was, I think, central to the Jewish cooking in Rome, is that right? Yeah, frying is one of the, I would say, like pillars of Roman Jewish cuisine. But a lot of the foods that you see in Rome today that are fried, fried anchovies, frito misto, um, fried mozzarella, date back to the Roman Jewish ghetto and really formed there. And the most famous of them is fried artichokes, carciofi alla giudia, which literally means like Jewish style artichoke. And it's one of the most delicious things I've eaten in my life. Yeah, I I agree. That's a delicious dish. So how do you prep an artichoke? I mean, if you, I know most people in the kitchens are not even sure how to chop an onion, Mm -hmm. but if if you gave them an artichoke and said, please prep it, they would, they would just wouldn't know what to do. So (laughs) how, yeah, how do you prep an artichoke? So I will first say that I've paired a lot of artichokes the Roman way, and I'm still learning. You know, the real experts are if you go to the Roman Jewish ghetto and you go outside of any restaurant, you'll see a guy sitting on a chair with blue gloves on, peeling away the layers of darker leaves to expose the softer inside. And like they work so fast and it is so fascinating to watch them work. I could literally, I mesmerized. But if you ask two elders how to pair an artichoke correctly, they will argue and tell you that, you know, the other one is wrong and and ridiculous and they're doing it the wrong way. Of course. But the way I do it is you take the artichoke by the stem and you kind of snap off the outer darker leaves. And from there, you take a small paring knife and you peel off the outer layer of the stem. And then you take the top and you kind of cut 
maybe like a third to a half of the pointed dome part of the leaves off. So you're basically left with what looks like a closed rosebud. And then from there, it kind of depends on what you're making. If you're making the carciofi alla giudia, the Jewish style fried artichokes, you peel open the center. And if your artichoke has the like hairy choke in the center, you, you would remove it. And then you would deep fry it. You let it cool just a little bit so you can handle it. And then you kind of pry open the leaves to make more of like a flower shape. And then you fry it a second time until the leaves get really crisp. And they're honestly, they're like... They're like flaky potato chips. Mm. They're so delicious. You know, simplicity always for me is is sort of the hallmark of great cooking. And I, I made a couple recipes this weekend from your book, actually. And, and they're all just incredibly simple. Uh, tomato halves, you know, mm-hmm. drizzle them, I think, with a little vinegar and oil and put them in an oven for, you know, maybe an hour and 15 minutes. And uh, they were fabulous. Mm. And then, then you had another recipe with thin sliced fennel and some matchsticks of carrot, a little lemon juice, salt on it, let it sit for a little while. So talk about that. I I just like taking vegetables, for example, and keeping it simple, either with heat or no heat at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you have something, you know, which I don't think is part of the classic American repertoire. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think Roman Jewish cuisine shares something with Italian cuisine more globally in that there's a lot of dishes that really take very few ingredients and there's something about the alchemy of thyme and really good olive oil, right? And that, that makes them taste amazing. I mean, one of my favorite dishes in the book, um, Stracotto di Manzo, it's like their version of a beef stew. I, I first had it at um, a kosher caterer's house in Rome back in like 2009. Um, <laughs> I was actually a vegetarian at the time and my husband and I were traveling for our honeymoon And uh, we got to this caterer's house for Shabbat and I looked at the table and it was covered in meat dishes. And I just, I literally, I turned to my husband and I was like, if the phrase when in Rome ever applies, it's tonight, I'm going to eat everything. And I ate everything and I'm really glad I did. Um, Did you return to vegetarianism after that or not? uh, Let's just say I did, but let's say it was the beginning of the end. Okay. Um, But one of the dishes that stood out was literally shin meat and tomato passata and olive oil and onion. And that's literally all that's in the dish. But there's something that happens in the three hours that you're letting this meat simmer on the stove and it just becomes velvety. And the cliche of more of the sum of its parts really applies um, because it's so succulent and so delicious. There was a tomato celery sauce uh, with a meatball dish. And mm-hmm. what was interesting to me is instead of being part of the sofrito, right, where it's mm-hmm it's diced and, and sauteed, it actually is, has fairly large pieces and it's, it, re, it retains its character. Is that something that happens, you think, a lot in this style of cooking where something like turnip, you have a turnip and rice soup, for example, things that are looked down upon probably by many cooks as being just add a little bit of flavor, mm-hmm. really have a star turn? Yeah. I mean, I love Roman Jew's love of celery. And actually that that dish you're mentioning, it's it's basically chicken and veal meatballs, and they're cooked in a tomato sauce with these little batons of celery. So you actually get like bites mm. of of celery. Um, and I first had that dish at that same Shabbat dinner, that same meaty carnivorous Shabbat dinner that I went to. And I remember just thinking how cool it was that 
the celery wasn't hiding in the sofrito and it was kind of getting its its own star turn. And yeah, I think Italian Jews in Sicily and in Rome both helped to popularize certain vegetables that um, the rest of the, the population kind of didn't like or looked down upon, as, as you put it. Um, so fennel, um, eggplants, and artichokes were all at some point considered to be quote-unquote Jewish vegetables. One last thing that really caught my eye from the book was a ricotta pie with a layer of fruit at the bottom. And actually, I'm going to Rome tomorrow awesome. to eat this, among other things. But mm-hmm. this pie has a really interesting history, right? Yeah. So that is um, a sour cherry and ricotta crostata or pie. Um, and it's most famously baked at this uh, 200-year-old kosher bakery called uh, Pastisseria Boccioni. That's Boccioni. where I'm going. Yes. That's, that's where you got to go. Yeah. And if you go, there's no signage, but you'll find it because it's right on the corner and there's always a line of people out the door. Um, and what's interesting about it is most crostata in Italy and Rome either have a single crust or have some kind of lattice crust, but this one is actually double crusted. And the reason that is is One of the other restrictions um, that Roman Jews had is they were not allowed to sell bread, meat, or dairy products to Christians. So the the Jews of Rome got around that by putting a top crust on the pie um, so that you couldn't see what was inside and you couldn't see that there was a layer of ricotta inside. So that also, I mean, how true these stories are, I don't no, but I love I love that thought of just the ingenuity and the kind of we're going to do it anyway spirit that um, pervades the, the Roman Jewish community. If I were going to Rome, which I am tomorrow, um, <laughs> are there places you recommend going in Rome, uh, bakeries, restaurants to eat some of this food? You're definitely right on to go to the pastry shop, although Boccioni is known for kind of burning their pastries. Uh, They have really (laughs) old ancient ovens. So they're kind of known for this like burned patina on top of everything. Uh, (laughs) But Hmm. it's still delicious. And then again, in the ghetto, one of my favorite restaurants is called Casalino Asteria. And it's run by a lovely family and including the probably octogenarian grandmother, Letizia, who Hmm. still comes in every single day, like dressed to the nines, you know, mostly to like sit and chat with people, but also to make sure that the chefs are doing it right. And um, their food is some of the best. I I had the best Hmm. eggplant Parmesan I've ever had in my life there. And they have wonderful um, fried artichokes and yeah, have fun. I will. And now I have some dishes that I absolutely need to try and add to my list. And thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. Really an honor to be with you. That was Leah Koenig. Her book is Portico, Cooking and Feasting in Rome's Jewish Kitchen. Robert De Niro once said that Italy has changed, but Rome is Rome. And when it comes to food, I agree, the Roman menu is much less adventurous than what you would find in Paris or London. But in the old Jewish quarter, there was more to Roman cooking than pizza, pasta, and gelato. At Yodvada, the well-known kosher restaurant, they serve fried artichokes that have been expertly prepared, offering thin potato chip crispy leaves. And the 200-year-old bakery, Pasticcieri Boccione, sells mahogany-colored ricotta cheesecakes with a bottom layer of wild cherries. So, yeah, Rome is Rome, but there is more to Roman cuisine 
than first meets the eye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time to head into the kitchen with J.M. Hirsch to talk about this week's recipe, rigatoni alla zozona. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. You and I have been to Rome a few times. Here and there. (laughs) Never together, but separately. (laughs) And there are three things I would say. You can get really bad pasta there. It's happened to me. There are a lot of the usual suspects like cacio e pepe. But what's so wonderful about Rome is there are hundreds, if not thousands, of other pasta dishes that we've never heard of, which is surprising because these are just terrific recipes. So you came across a dirty pasta. What does that mean? You know, we go to Italy, like you say, and we think we know pasta, and then every time we learn something new. And rigatoni alla zozzona is the classic example of this, something that, of course, every Roman knows all too well, but is new to us. Zozzona translates as dirty, (laughs) but actually it's kind of an antiquated translation that really means leftover. Zozzona is classic cucina povera, where home cooks would use the bits and pieces of whatever they happen to have laying around and combine it and make it into dinner. But what's particularly interesting about this dish is that it's using the bits and pieces kicking around that are the core ingredients of two very well-known, very classic Roman pastas, carbonara and amatriciana. You say carbonara. It's a creamy, cheesy dish and also spicy, tomatoey? Creamy, cheesy, spicy, tomatoey, meaty, you name it, it's in there. It is actually one of the best pastas I've ever eaten. I know, you know, dirty pasta. It is incredible. So, you know, carbonara is, of course, the classic pasta with eggs, guanciale, or sometimes increasingly pancetta, pecorino romano, some black pepper. Amatriciana is pretty much the same thing, but throw tomatoes in instead of the eggs. Zona is the best of all of these things. It's got the eggs, it's got the tomatoes, it's got the spice, and just for good measure, they throw in some spicy Italian sausage. <laughs> it sounds like a lot, but it is actually so amazingly rich and wonderful and satisfying. It's got a lot going on, but it works so well. I mean, it's carbonara and amatriciana. I mean, you can't go wrong there. Well, I was about to ask you that question, which is, is this one of those dishes that really works on location, but you get it back here and it turns out to be kind of a heavy mess? I mean, that's what I was sort of thinking. You know what? It comes together so perfectly. And, you know, there's a couple of reasons for it. The first and perhaps the most important of which is the creaminess of this pasta. You know, in the United States, we tend to think of creamy pastas as relying on cheese and eggs and, frankly, fat for that creaminess. But as we know from our many trips to Italy, really the creaminess comes from the starchy pasta cooking water that binds everything together, enriches it, thickens it, and that is absolutely the case here. You have a spare amount of fat, you have a spare amount of cheese, you have a spare amount of eggs, and really what you're getting is this emulsification from the starchy cooking water of the pasta, and that's tying that all together and just making this lovely rich sauce that yet is not heavy. So no cream, but pasta water that's starchy sort of fills in for that, which is a, you know, like cacio e pepe, it's a classic Italian technique. Correct. And it ties all of this stuff together so that you get away with using less of them. So, yeah, there is meat in it. And yes, there is cheese and eggs, but you don't need as much as you think to get that kind of creamy impact. Jam, thank you. Yet another pasta dish I'd never heard of.
<laughs> rigatoni alla zozona or dirty pasta. Thank you. Thank you. You can get the recipe for rigatoni alla zozona at milkstreetradio.com. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, find out what it takes to impress the world's best pizza makers. That's up after the break. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some wisdom from Italian cooking expert Viola Buitoni, who's here to tell us about a surprising way to use one of her very favorite ingredients, balsamic vinegar. My first core memory of balsamic vinegar dates back to when I was barely a grade school child. I was in Bologna with one of my sisters and both of my parents, and my sister and I were left for lunch in the hotel's restaurant in the hand of some very skilled and delightful waiters who at some point during the meal brought out these tiny little bottles and just started 
dropping something that looked like beautiful brown silk onto our food and my mouth was just completely engaged but it wasn't just my mouth it was also my nose and it was also the back of my throat and just that wonderful sweet soft acidity that you get from true traditional balsamic vinegar and since that trip it was always a staple in our house so here's my secret tip for balsamic you can actually add it to your cocktail I love it with Prosecco, with gin, or even just in some fizzy water. And of course, to spruce it up, you can always put in a little fruit. Berries are great in the spring and summer, but you could also do pears in the winter, some orange around Christmas time. There is lots of fun that you can have with a Prosecco cocktail. That was Viola Buitoni. She's an Italian cooking teacher. Her latest book is Italy by Ingredient. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, food writer Matt Goulding is here to tell us about a quest that took him to Italy. He woke up one day intent on pursuing a new dream. It's something that takes literally decades to master, but he was determined to do it in just two weeks. He worked so hard he could barely lift his arms at the end of each day, but none of this effort would matter if he couldn't convince an elite group of experts to let him join their ranks. Matt wanted to make pizza. And to do that, of course, he had to go to Naples. Matt, welcome back to Milk Street. Chris, man, excellent, as always, to be talking with you. I I love chatting with you. I love spending some time with you um, in Bologna a few years ago. Man, when can we go back? That was a a special run. Yeah. So from Bologna, we're today heading to Naples. That's right. Um, You know, I had actually thought about giving up this whole writing gig and um, becoming a professional pizza maker. (laughs) I was obsessed with pizza. I love the idea of having a really small set of variables. At least that's what I thought at the time. You know, you had dough, you had sauce, you had cheese, and you had heat. And that through your own blood, sweat, and tears, you would coerce that into alchemic expressions of delicious food. And I signed up to take what is essentially the official pizza making course from what's called the AVPN, mm. the Associazione Verace Pizza Napolitana. You know, I, I jokingly call them the pizza police. That's probably a step too far. They're not going to fine you if you don't adhere to their principles. But if you want to be certified as an official Neapolitan pizzaiolo, you go through their courses. So paint the picture. Is this in some glorious archetypal building in Naples? Is it stuffed in a basement? Definitely the latter there. Chris. <laughs> okay, Definitely that's the what latter. I thought. It was right. That's more Neapolitan. It was right, right next door to some type of glorious piece of architecture, but it was nevertheless stuffed into a basement. Yeah. And you spent four or five hours a day in class, and then you spent four or five hours a day making pizza, and you eventually move out of the classroom into an apprenticeship at a local pizzeria, which is both an incredibly exciting and terrifying proposition. So the hardest part of all this is shaping the dough. I have a hundred theories about this, but you actually probably know the answer, so I'll ask you. So if you're talking to someone who's not had a lot of success in shaping dough, what would you tell them that you found in this course that would help them do it right? I mean, in my case, it was just repetition. 
at first it felt like the dough would not bend to my will. And the, the professor would come in and take that same dough when in, with three flicks of the wrist would have this beautiful, perfect circle. You know, and in the case of Neapolitan pizza, because it's so thin, it's all the more important to be precise. You know, they, one of their bylaws is something like there may be no variance greater than 0.25 centimeters from crust to the center of the pizza. Oh, my God. Is the flour in Naples, you think, different than what you get here and therefore critical to success? And two, is there a hydration level, the weight of the water to the weight of the flour? Is that something that's stipulated by that local group? Is the flour special? Well, by some measures, it's special. It's Caputo. Caputo is a brand name that's made there in Naples, right there in the city. It's been around for a very long time. You can get it available in the U.S., but if the argument is, you know, pizza is this way in Naples because of the flour and because of the water, that old New York, New York City bagel yeah. trope, which I think has been disproven a million times over, um, yeah. I would say that's, that's also not the case in Naples. But what you do have, of course, is an abundance of extraordinary mozzarella producers. And of course, you have the famous San Marzano tomatoes that are grown right there in the volcanic soil. Vesuvius. And so I think it's funny here in the States, you oftentimes hear about people's recipe for pizza sauce. Um, there's not a pizza that I've tasted in Naples, really anywhere in Italy, I would I'd be willing to say that is actually a recipe. It is just a can of whole peeled tomatoes, the highest possible quality <laughs> I love it. I love it. with extra virgin olive oil and a generous amount of salt. That is it. So I, I still have some questions. So is this sort of a medium hydration? Is this like a 65% or 60% hydration? It lower. It's about 50% hydration. Oh, so it's really low. It's really quite low, oh. which is crazy when you compare that to some of the, th- yeah, I think some of the, the great pizzerias in the States and other places, including in Italy, of course, are doing really high hydration doughs up to 70 or 80% that will sit for three or four days. You know, because it's, a relatively short fermentation is between 8 and 24 hours. And because it then goes into an oven that's very, very hot, about 500 degrees Celsius, up to about a 900, 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, you have that characteristic kind of blistered, leopard-spotted crust called the cornicione, which rises and has this beautiful volume to it. But in the middle, you have a very soupy center. Well, that, I was going to say that because when I went there, I was shocked because the first thing I noticed is everyone had a knife and fork. No no way you're picking up that pizza pizza and no, eating it. No. And then the center was soggy and it tasted great. But I'm going like, wait a minute, this is like something's wrong here. And then I realized that, that nobody cared that it was soggy in the center. That's just what the deal is. As an Italian chef or you know, pizza cook, how would they think about the center being soggy? That's just... The style? It's not a fault of any kind? It's not. It is indeed the style. In fact, it is kind of written into the bylaws of the AVPN <laughs> that that a, that a Neapolitan pizza should be soft and fragrant. And this is a quote directly from their guidelines book. That is the style, and you learn it, and you learn how to turn out dough over and over and over again. And then what this all leads up to at the very end of this course is your final exam is making two pizzas. You make the pizza marinara, and you make the margarita. And you do this in front of a, a body of pizza luminaries, um, oh, not a great. one of them under the age of 80. Each one of them is, you know, 80 to 90. So you're talking oh. 400 years of sort of pizza experience accumulated at this table. And 
I will never get this image out of my head, but here I've done, I've patted out my pizza, begun to sauce it, and you got that move where you take it with your fingertips from right. a well-floured board onto the pizza peel. To the peel. Right? Yeah. And as I'm moving it, it just gets caught. <laughs> One little piece in the middle of it gets caught, and it tears. Big, huge hole, and there goes my dreams of becoming a pizzaiolo. And um, I'm, you know, trying not to show how, how affected I am by this, but clearly... This was a, a big moment and one of the oldest guys, in fact, the real capo of this group, stood up and said, you know, this guy deserves another chance. And they all kind of nodded in agreement and huh. I went back to work and I banged out my last two pizzas and they were passable. I assume you still make pizza occasionally at home these days. Um, have you changed your mind about style? That is, you're making the same pizza you were taught in class or have you moved on? I. Sometimes I will. Um, I don't have a pizza oven, but I have a really big grill. And I do a version of grilled pizza that I really love. Um, and so, you know, I, I take some of the things that I learned from there. I have um, an uni on the way. And when I, that shows up, I'll probably go back to my old uh, textbooks and dust them off and see if I can't put out a couple of margaritas that don't stick to the board. Matt, thank you. Uh, a pleasure, as always. I hope to catch up with you in Italy soon. Always fun, Chris. Thank you for the time. That was Matt Goulding. His book about Italy is Pasta Pane Vino. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Milk Street at 177milkstreet.com. There you can become a member and get full access to every recipe to all live stream cooking classes, free standard shipping from the Milk Street store, and more. You can also learn about our latest cookbook, Milk Street Noodles. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimmel's Milk Street, on Instagram at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions, and thanks as always for listening. Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Associate producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.